Lord Jesus, we desperately need you at the center. And so we ask that you would take everything else out of the center. All of our fears, our anxieties, our arrogance, our greed, our aspirations, whatever it may be. The idols of our heart that we so quickly run to, take it out of the center and put you there. You're the only one worthy. You're the only one that can handle it. Lord Jesus, be our center. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning, Strong Tower. Good to see your smiling faces this morning as we gain uh, some ground towards Christmas. We're, we're getting closer. Children, we're getting closer. There are six days remaining. Six days. If you want to grab your Bible, um, we're going to be looking at our last passage for the season of Advent from Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25. If you're a guest uh, this morning, again, and we want to welcome you. We're glad you could be with us today. Uh, you may have heard in the announcements or saw as you walked in this growth journal as it was being passed out. You want to grab one uh, before you head out today. It is our plan for reading the Bible. Uh, you can join in with us either using the physical copy or the digital website that we have, growthjournalonline.com. But it's for us to read the Bible together in community, and that starts January 1st. And you may have also heard that we're combining grow classes into one class, and the whole class, hopefully everybody in this room will be there to learn how to study the Bible better. So as we're starting this Bible reading program in the new year, the class is about how to dig deeper in the scripture, how to understand and apply the Bible for yourself in your own devotional life, your own study. And so I'm really excited to have uh, everybody together and uh, really have some good discussion around that and some practical application how to do that in your own life. So please, uh, when that starts, January 9th, we would love for everyone to be there. Whether you consider yourself a leader in our church or you're a brand new Christian or you're not a Christian and you have no idea how to read the Bible, we would love for you to be at that class January 9th. All right, let's read Isaiah chapter 25, beginning at verse 6 through 9. Hear the reading of God's word. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged, aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today with us in death, with us in death. Let's pray again before we begin. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you that it is so rich to give us life and hope in the midst of our death and despair. God, that you by your spirit are transforming our hearts and our minds, sometimes when we know it and sometimes when we don't even know it. Sometimes you're working in mysterious ways that 
go beyond our comprehension and then we look back and we see your work, your hand, so visible, yet when we were in the midst of it, it was invisible. And so God, we pray you would do that today, that you would use, use your word to change us for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. You may be seated. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of skepticism. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. These are the opening lines that famously begin Charles Dickens' uh, book, A Tale of Two Cities. And maybe you've read it in high school or never read it and turned in something to the teacher that you forgot about. I don't know. But, but this famous opening line gives, gives the glimpse into what it was like as he's writing this story in the times of the French Revolution, where the oppressed were overturning their oppressors and then ironically become corrupt by power themselves. But as he's writing this, he's saying that it was basically two times at the same time. Right? It was a time of hope, yet it was a, a time of despair. It was a time of light, yet it was darkness. It was both at the same time. It was best, and it was the worst. And I think this imagery really captures the season of Advent well. Because the season of Advent really is a season of best and worst. And that's what Advent is all about, right? It's the best in the sense because we're, we're full of hope and joy and celebration and, and we're anticipating what's coming, but, but it's also the worst of times. Because it, it's a season that can be full of longing and waiting and, and, and you know, this grieving as, as you're lamenting what isn't. And so the season of Advent really is a season of both, right? It's strange how you can be in this season, this Christmas season or Advent season, and you're around so many people, and yet you feel lonely. I mean, isn't it strange how you can be in this season where everyone's giving and receiving gifts all the time, and you still feel empty? Right? It feels like it's the best of times, yet at the same time, it's the worst of times. And it's, it's because Advent is really this season where, where we're celebrating in between what theologians call the two Advents. So you've got the first Advent where we're celebrating Jesus' birth, right? Jesus is coming, or He has come, and, and he's, he's walked among us, and He's died for us, and, and yet He's still yet to come, right? So, so we're living in between the two Advents of He has come, and yet He is still to come, and right in the middle of those two advents is this strange problem of death. Right, right in the center of our experience as humanity living between these two advents is death. What do we do with death? I mean, death has been on center stage these last two years, has it not? I mean, death has been on center stage as our nation just passed this past week 800,000 deaths in our country since the pandemic began from COVID-19. 800,000. That's nearly a million people who've lost their lives 
and millions more who've lost a friend or a co-worker or a brother or a sister or a mother or a father. All, All of us are collectively grieving, and some of us are individually grieving for people that we know and we love, and, and it has been hard. Right? It's been right in front of us for months and months and months, something that none of us thought would go on this long, and it just keeps going. Right? And it keeps this right in front of us, this death, this, this stench of death, this confusion, this pain, this infuriation, right? And there's so many emotions and questions. How do we make sense of this? What, what does this mean? And this is why Advent really captures the cultural moment we're in. What do we do with death in between the two Advents? What do we do? And this brings us to our last sermon in this text, we've, or in this series we've been talking about called God With Us. And if you're just joining with us, that's all right. We've been walking through a book in the Bible called Isaiah, and Isaiah has uh, prophecies about Jesus coming, and many of them are in the beginning of Isaiah's prophetic work. And so we've been kind of tracking back and looking at some of those earlier passages in his book. And as we come to chapter 25, we, we come in at a point where... Uh, God has been dealing with this greatest pain of all, death. Because for about 10 chapters, if you go back and you read 10 chapters before chapter 25, it's prophecy after prophecy after prophecy of judgment. It's judgment on Israel, it's judgment on Judah, it's judgment on Babylon, on Assyria. Everybody's getting judgment. It's just nonstop judgment for 10 chapters, and it seems as if it's only the worst of times. It seems as if you look at it from the distance that it's only bad news all the time. And then there's a shift, and God speaks hope into the death and the despair in this chapter 25. And he gives this contrasting vision where it seemed it was just the worst of times, but it's also the best of times. And so how does God speak hope into that? That's what I want to look at today in our brief time. Uh, let's, fir- let's look first at the world we want. If you're taking notes, number one, the world we want. Look at verse 6, how Isaiah begins this passage. He says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of Aged wine, well-refined. Do you hear the major contrast? Right? For, for 10 chapters, Isaiah has been pronouncing as God's mouthpiece, you're going to get judgment, and you're going to get judgment, and you're going to get judgment, and it's all judgment, and then it flips. In other words, in the last 10 chapters, it's been a funeral. But here, it's a feast. And he says this feast is going to happen on this mountain. And he he repeats it so you don't miss it. He repeats it in verse 6, verse 7, verse 10. And the reference is to the city of Jerusalem, which is fascinating because he can't be talking about the city of Jerusalem that they're looking at, that's just been devastated. But what he's talking about is a Jerusalem to come. He's talking about another city, a new Jerusalem, a new Zion that was going to come and where this old city of Jerusalem was marked by death and despair and destruction and everything was going wrong. He says this new city on this mountain is going to be different. He's painting a picture of their future 
that's nothing like their present. He's painting a picture of a new city that will be not marked by death, but by life and joy. In fact, he uses the imagery of the Exodus. If you go all the way back to the Exodus, and if you're new to the Bible, uh, God's people for 400 years were in bondage in Egypt. For 400 years living under bondage, and God comes in to deliver them and to set them free, and He uses Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. And when they come out of Egypt, they're headed towards the Promised Land. And as they're headed towards the Promised Land, they make their way through a wilderness. And on the way, they come to this mountain called Mount Sinai. And God tells Moses he's going to meet him on Mount Sinai. And so God calls Moses up on Mount Sinai. And Moses goes to the top and he meets with God. And God, as we know, he gives him the Ten Commandments and the law and delivers to his people this covenant relationship, right? This this marking of, of their relationship. And then when he sends Moses back down, Moses tells all the people and then God calls Moses back up. But this time he calls him back up. And he says, I don't want you to come by yourself. I want to confirm the covenant with my people. Now, at this point, there's millions of Israelites that are wandering in the wilderness together. They can't all fit on the mountain. So God says, I want to confirm my covenant with representatives. I want you to bring elders up from the people. And you and the elders are going to come and we're going to dine together. It's fascinating. This is what they do when God confirms the covenant. Exodus 24, 11, this is what it says. It says, they beheld God and they ate and drank. In other words, when God decides, I'm going to make a covenant promise to you, the sign that the promise is going to be fulfilled is we're going to feast. We're going to feast. And right there on the mountain with Moses and the elders, God serves and hosts his people. God makes a meal for his people. Because the fullness of God in his, in his own way is, is enjoyed with a feast. That's the way it's designed. Now listen, but Isaiah takes that Exodus narrative and he takes it up a notch. Right? Because uh, in, in the Exodus narrative, it was just for a select few people. It was just for Moses and the elders. But here, in the New Zion, the feast is for all. I mean, he repeats the allness so you don't miss it. It's, it's five times in just three verses. He, he goes on to say it'll be all people, all nations. It'll be all faces. It'll be all the earth, right? He's saying it's going to be everyone that you can see is going to be invited to this feast. And the fascinating part of it is it's going to include people you don't like. I mean, all means all, right? Yeah, it means all. He, he's inviting to the table the people who have hurt them. And then he gives this fascinating vision that at the table... They're going to feast on rich foods, rich wine. None of that leftover frozen foods. God is going to feast with his people. And this radical vision means it's not only going to be a meal, but it's going to be a world that's remade. A world that that redefines what our experience has been here, where it's been marked by death, despair, destruction. It's going to be life and feasting and reconciliation. See, what I want you to hear this morning is God's future, the picture that he's painting, is not a funeral. It's a feast. It's a feast. 
And so what that means is Isaiah is trying to capture our imagination to see that the destination ahead of us is different than the present reality. The destination ahead of us is going to be a celebration. That, that's what it's going to be. And so for now, yes, we grieve. For now, we're exhausted. For now, we, we weep and we tarry and we wait. But then it's going to be something different. Because right now is not where it's going. Right now is pain and difficulty and loss. But where we're headed towards is a party. A party in heaven. Isaiah says we're headed to another mountain where we will feast with our God forever. And here's the most amazing part. You bring nothing to the feast. The most amazing part is the nations don't gather to serve God. The nations in the vision don't gather to offer more sacrifices. The nations gather at a table that God has set for them. God is saying, I've done everything already. I've prepared it for you. I've bought it. I've purchased it. Now you sit down and enjoy yourself with all the people that I've redeemed. That's the feast. And so it's this feast that's, that's rooted in reconciliation, reconciliation between God and us and us and them. Them, like those people, right? In other words, at the table are not going to be outsiders and insiders. There's not going to be Republicans and Democrats. There's not going to be rich and poor. There's not going to be, you know, the people who have and the people who don't. There, there's not going to be all these categories. It's, it's going to be God's people together at the table feasting, even with the people who caused your greatest pain. Even with the people that you caused greatest pain. I mean, think about that. Don't miss the miracle that God is doing, that He would bring together people that would never be together. God says, that's, that's the future. That's where we're headed. That's the miracle that, that from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, as John said, together with Him. And so where we're headed, Isaiah says, is meant to shape where we are in the present. Right? It's meant to shape the hurt that we're currently experiencing. In other words, we, we don't ignore the pain. This is not to deny what's happening right now. It's to say that we engage the pain with hope. That, that's what God is calling us to do. He's saying in the midst of your loss, in the midst of your grief and your pain, He said, I want you to engage it, but I want you to engage it with the medicine of hope. And specifically the hope of the future that I'm building. In other words, God wants us to speak truth to our hearts. He wants us to fight for our minds, to struggle for our souls. The book of Hebrews would later say, faith is the assurance, the assurance of things hoped for. In other words, faith feeds on hope. If you have no hope, your faith will die. He says, it's the assurance of this is what I hope for. When was the last time you let your soul just soak in hope? I mean, some of us, we, we've been hurting so deeply that feels like a cop-out, right? It feels like I'm just ignoring it. But listen, you're, you're not ignoring it. You're, you're engaging it. You're, you're not letting your pain dictate your life. You're not letting your, your struggle take apart the narrative that God is building for you and, and ruin what God has for you in the future. He, he's saying, I want you to speak to your heart hope. This is where you're going. 
Death isn't the destination. We're headed to Mount Zion. And of course, that's not right now, right? That's the future. It's not the present. Let's look at our present enemy that Isaiah speaks to, the enemy we engage. Look at verse 7. He says, And he will swallow up, speaking of God, God will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. In other words, what he's talking about, he's talking about an ancient Near Eastern practice. And and this is what would happen in the ancient Near East. The kings would gather together a feast to, uh, to make a great announcement. Right, so it wasn't like today where you go on, you know, the eight o'clock primetime news or something, and and the president would make an announcement to everybody. That's not how it worked. They they had to gather people in a feast to make a great announcement. And so right here we see God, our King, gathering together a feast of all the nations to make an announcement. And the question is begging, what's the announcement? Right, and the announcement is two things. Two things. He says, first, I've swallowed up this covering over all the people. Now, what's he speaking about? Well, you go back and you look in the context, the covering over all the people is the darkness that he's describing, the despair, the destruction, all the pain and the ruin that covers all the people who live under the curse of sin. He's saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to swallow up that veil, that covering that keeps you between the life that God has for you. I'm going to to get rid of it. And then he makes another promise. In verse 8, he says, He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. There's that all again. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Listen, in the ancient world, the, the enemy of the present was despair. But the enemy of the future was death. In other words, life was hard, just like it is today, and and it was often easy to slip into despair, and that was the constant struggle, is to keep hope in your life, but death was coming. And, and, And even if you found a way to have hope in the present, how can I have hope in the future? Because death is coming, and and literally in the Babylonian mythology, they had death pictured as this this thing that would come swallow up everything else. Because no one could escape it. It was coming and it was undefeated. And so they, they feared death as this thing that would end everything in life. And so you might as well live for now because nothing happens after that. And Isaiah, in a turn of the events, uses their imagery but flips it. In other words, it's not death that swallows, but it's death that gets swallowed. And it's swallowed by God himself. This, this ruthless oppressor of death is now swallowed up. And it's this incredible promise that God gives. But listen, why do we still battle? Right? He gives this promise because it's the future. This is what God is going to do, but it's the enemy that we still live with. Right? We still battle with death. What does this mean? What he's, what he's communicating to us is this. Listen, death is a defeated, yet it's determined enemy. It's a defeated enemy, yet it's determined to keep fighting. On Christmas Eve in 1914, uh, World War I briefly paused. Uh, You may have heard of it before. It's been called the Christmas Truce. And it was between um, 
France and Germany as they were on the front lines fighting with each other, shooting across the lines. And uh, it's said that one soldier held up a sign that said, Merry Christmas. And, and it said, Merry Christmas, across the lines to the other soldiers that were fighting them. And it caused, for some odd reason, everybody to pause. And at this point, like, it was only five months into the war and a million people had already either been killed or hurt. A million people in just five months. And so no one was going to stop until it was over, and yet it just paused. And as everything paused, people started walking across into no man's land, the land in between them. And they sat down and they sang Christmas carols. And they ate together and they drank together. And everybody thought it was so odd that anybody would stop, but then they didn't know how to restart. So they, they didn't. And that was Christmas Eve, and then they had another you know, good day on Christmas Day, and then on the 26th, they kept hanging out with each other, and then their bosses, their higher-ups, decided, we, we can't keep having this. So the only way they could get them to, to start fighting again was to send new troops in. And when the new troops come on the 27th, the fighting resumed. But it's a fascinating look at how death, for just a moment, paused and gave way to life. But it wasn't forever, right? It wasn't forever because death is, it's this enduring enemy of our age. That you can try to pause it, you can try to delay it, you can try to, you can try to stop it, but somehow it, it just keeps going. It, it just keeps fighting. It just keeps enduring. Tim Keller, an author, says this about death. He says, death is the great interruption. It's the great schism, and it's the great insult. Did you hear that? Interruption, schism, and insult. That's death. And listen, secular culture, it doesn't, it doesn't prepare us for that. It doesn't prepare us for death because we, we live and we're, we're told and we preach that that this life, the here and now, is all that really matters because there's nothing beyond this life, and so what matters is now. And if what matters is now, then what matters is for me to make sure my social media persona is, is curated just perfectly, and what matters is that I invest in my career and achieve as much as I can, or what matters is I make sure I, I have every pleasure and comfort that I can possibly have to make my life as enjoyable as I can, right? That, that's what life is about. And then death comes along and challenges all of it, mocks all of it. I mean, we, we've become such a secular society, not only because of, of the way our culture is, but also because of, and, and ironically, modern medicine has isolated us a lot from death, where it's, it's not uncommon for people to go decades without seeing someone actually die. Because most people die in a hospital or a hospice and separated from most people, and then people come in later and see their loved one or their, their family member. And so death has become kind of this mysterious, taboo thing that most of us don't even know how to handle or make sense of. Right? And, and so it hasn't prepared us properly. We're probably the, the generation least prepared for death. And so it comes along and mocks our materialism, the assumption today that everything should be getting better, right? Our, our trajectory in life should be up and to the right. 
It should be getting bigger and better and faster and smarter. And, and so if we aren't improving, something is wrong with us. It should always be more, not less. It should always be better, not worse. It should always increase, not decrease. And then suffering and death, again, interrupts all of that. And now all of a sudden, it's not better. It's not bigger. It's not greater. It challenges our assumptions about what really matters. Because if it's all about material success, then death will be an enemy you can't defeat. Because death, in the end, will rob you of every dollar, every friend, every, every achievement in your career. If that's what life is about, death is, a, is an enemy you can't defeat. And this, this is what really humbles us about death. This is why Tim Keller said it's, it's the insult of death. Because here's the tension in the Bible. The tension in the Bible is all of us are, are made in the image of God with immeasurable beauty and worth and value. And, and so because of that, God has made you to be someone who reflects Him in the world and to do great things for Him in His kingdom. And that is true about you. But the flip side is also true, that we're dust. We're dust. As Shakespeare so elegantly put, we're, we're just worm food. That, that's who we are. We're made in the image of God, and yet we're so fleeting like just the wind. And so death, it, it speaks to that, right? It, it humbles us because now we're powerless. We, we can't defeat this enemy. We don't have anything to stop it. We don't have anything to reverse it. We don't have anything to push it back. It, it's still coming for us. And yet God promises he will defeat it. How does that make sense? How are we supposed to react to that? How do we win in the battle? What, what is our role? Let's look there now as we close. The last point is the way we win. The way we win against death. Look at verse 9. He says, it'll be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Look, the, the phrase on that day is referring to what the Bible calls the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord was this day that was coming in the future that would be both a day of judgment and a day of redemption. It would be a day where God would deal with sin, but He would also save His people. And so here, Isaiah is saying that he's looking ahead and, and he's seeing that when that, day got, when that day comes, God is going to come and be present. He's going to arrive. He's going to come be with His people in their despair, in their death, in all the loss. He's, he's coming, right? They say, behold, our God, He's come. Here He is. He hasn't saved us from afar. He's chosen to come close into all of it. And so Isaiah sees God's coming, and yet he focuses on our waiting. The people repeat it twice. They say, we have waited for him. We have waited for him. This is a theme all throughout Isaiah. If you go back and you read Isaiah, all throughout Isaiah, it's repeated over again. Probably the most famous is Isaiah chapter 40, where he says, they that wait for the Lord, they shall what? Renew their strength, right? This is over and over. What does it mean to wait on the Lord? I think it's a beautiful, biblical word for faith. 
to wait. See, to wait on the Lord doesn't mean that you do nothing. To wait on the Lord is this confident, alert expectation that God will do what He said He will do. Do you hear that? It's a confident, alert expectation that what God said, what He promised, will come to pass. And so to wait on the Lord is is not to do nothing. It's to do everything with an eye towards His arrival. With an eye towards my God is coming. My God is on His way. And so I'm not going to win based on my willpower or my strength, but I'm going to win every enemy, including death, by Him and His waiting. See, God waits for our waiting. That's what he's calling us into. He's saying, I've, I've defeated the enemy, and so you wait for me to come and finish the work. There's a species of bamboo that's commonly called the Chinese bamboo tree. And you may have heard of this or seen it on YouTube before. It's kind of been going viral for a little while now. Uh, but the tree itself is famous because of the way it grows. And it's not just the speed at which it grows, and that's impressive. It's one of the fastest growing plants in the world, but it's actually the timing at which it grows. And so if you were to get one of these seeds and and you were to plant it in the ground, I've heard that you plant it in the ground and you water, and after the first year of watering and waiting, you see nothing. Like there's, there's no signs of life, there's no signs of growth, and yet you go into year two and you water and you wait and still no signs. Then you go into year three and you water and you wait and diligent day after day and, you, and you're waiting and still nothing. You go into the fourth year and still the same thing. But when you go into the fifth year, after five years of day after day and day after day, waiting and watering, it sprouts. And it comes shooting out of the ground. And listen, in six weeks, 80 feet it grows 80 feet in six weeks. After almost 2,000 days of waiting with no growth, there's this explosion of growth. And what you see is the work was in the waiting. It was in the waiting. And this is what God says in Galatians in the New Testament. He says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son." born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Do you hear that? In the fullness of time. In other words, all creation was waiting and watering. We were waiting for this death that was oppressing us. We were waiting as despair covered us. We were waiting as darkness continued to spread. But in the fullness of time, God came in His Son, Jesus. He entered into the pain of this world. He entered into a world where He Himself lost loved ones. He entered into a world where He Himself knew what it meant to weep over His loss. He entered into a world where He knew what it meant to be betrayed, to be lost, to to have everyone abandon you. He knows what it's like. He entered into a world that was waiting. Waiting for defeat. And Jesus defeats death through the most surprising of ways, death itself. See, there was no other way to deal with sin and death than for the Son of God Himself to take our sin upon Himself. The sin that brought death into the world was now placed on the sinless Savior so that He could bear our sins on the cross. And as He bore our sins, He entered into the misery of centuries of our sin. He took our tears, he took our failures, he took our arrogance, our shame, he took it all upon himself, and with his last breath on the cross, Jesus cries, it is finished. 
What he's saying is, I've done the work. I've defeated it. Death and sin are defeated at the cross forever. As Isaiah says, behold our God on the cross. Behold our Savior who's come for us. Death is defeated, but it's not yet swallowed up. See, it'll be swallowed up when he comes again. Hebrews 9, 28 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, because he's already done it, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Those who are eagerly waiting. Jesus will come again. And when he comes a second time, there will be an explosion of growth. All that we had waited for, all that we have wept over, all that we've lost and endured, on that day, he says, I will wipe every tear on that day, he will, or we will dine with the feast of the Lamb. On that day, we will rejoice forever with Him. On that day, we will be face to face with our God forever. On that day. He's defeated it, and He's coming to finish it. And so now we wait in this eager expectation. This eager expectation. We water and we wait. We water and we wait. This this is what it means to have faith in this season of Advent. This is what it means to live between the two, where God has has accomplished His work, but yet He hasn't finished applying all of it. This is what it means to wait on the Lord, that as we endure through whatever it may be, we hope that one day we have this assurance that our God is on His way. Our God is coming. And He's coming, and in the midst of our waiting, He says, I'll be present with you now. I'll be present with you in your tears, in your loss, in your sin, in your failures. I'll be present with you now. But I'm coming. I'm coming. And when I come, it'll change everything. And we will feast. A feast you've never experienced. Forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, We pray along with the Apostle John, come quickly, come quickly. As we endure the dark night, as we endure despair and death, loss, it feels as if it's never going to happen. It feels as if you've forgotten us or abandoned us. And so Lord, we pray you'd restore us if that's where we find ourselves today. We pray for the soul that's longing for you to show up, that you would show up in small ways and big ways, but make it clear, make it evident that your presence would be felt, that your presence would be known, and that hope would be restored. Give assurance to those who are doubting and lacking, because that's all of us at times. God, as we endure hard things, it's hard to keep our hearts and our minds encouraged in the good news of the gospel. And so we pray your spirit would do that today. That you would bring the good news of Christmas, of Advent, that you have come and you are coming again to bear in our lives, to bear fruit. In Jesus' name.